In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 13, starting from verse 22. So please turn your Bible to Luke, chapter 13, starting from verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So here the Lord starting his journey toward Jerusalem to be crucified and to save us and to be buried and to be raised from the dead. But while he was journeying toward Jerusalem, he was teaching in every place. Where he could have an opportunity, he was teaching and preaching, not only by the example of his life, but also by the word of mouth. Besides this, he was actually healing people attending to their spiritual need as well as to their physical need. His delight was to do good both to the bodies and to the souls of men. And he was constant and diligent in it. Then actually, while he was journeying in verse 23, one, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, This question actually is a concern to many. And until now, people are asking, Are only the Orthodox will be saved? Who will be saved? Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? and who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Many people from the time of Christ until now and until the end of the ages, many people wonder about the salvation of others. Maybe there was a debate existing among the Jews at the time of Christ. Maybe the debate was about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, whether they are going to be saved or not. Early in this chapter, the Lord was teaching about the kingdom, and he said they will come from east, west, north, and south, and they will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the children of kingdom will be cast out. So maybe his teaching start to disturb the vision of the Israelites. Because the Israelites believe they are the chosen people of God. They are the only ones who will be saved. Nobody else, all the Gentiles will not be saved. So the question, is it true that only few will be saved? Only Israel will be saved? What about the rest of the world? And 
as we are going to see in the answer of the Lord, the Lord, it was his custom not to give a direct answer to the question. But his teaching that follows contains the answer to the question. For example, he didn't say, yes, only few will be saved, or no. He did not give an indirect answer, but he gives the teaching. And when we focus on this teaching, we can know the answer to the question. So, what was the answer? Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So the word many here means many will not find it, but few will find the narrow gate. That's why the Lord said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. From the beginning of God's relationship with man, through the gift of free will, man has always had the choice between two paths, two gates, two doors, either to travel the way of obedience to God or to go one's own way. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, from verse 15 to 20, Moses the prophet told them, Now I set before you the way of life and the way of death. So he told them, Choose the way of life to live. So it's your your choice. If you choose the way of life, in which you obey the commandment of the Lord, then you will live. But if you choose to obey your own desires, that is the way that leads to death. Yes, the way to life, the gate is narrow. The way is difficult. Few will be walking in it but leads to life. I'm not saying this to scare you, but the grace of God is with us from first moment. The grace of God will help you to enter through the narrow gate, to walk in the difficult way while you have only few around you, but the end is life. Actually, it's interesting to know in the early church, before the name Christian was applied to the believers at Antioch, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ were referred to as the followers of the way. As you read it, for example, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, the followers of the way. So what are you going follow uh, what are you following I'm following the way of Christ the way of life 
And here the Lord told us, strive to enter. Because the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. Strive means it takes effort and purpose to enter into it. Strive literally means agonize. The Lord said, for many will seek to enter, but will not be able. Why? Because they were not striving. You may have the wish, the desire, but if you don't strive, you cannot. You need to agonize. You need to fight. And fight the good fight in order to enter. And he said, strive to enter the narrow gate. Narrow means if you imagine narrow, you cannot bring with you unnecessary things. If you visit monasteries of, in Egypt, the old cells, not the new cells, you will find the door is both narrow in its height and its width. So actually, if you think about it, every time, the monk enter into the cell has to bow down as a symbol of humility. And a cell with a narrow gate like this in its height and its width. Can you imagine what kind of furniture will be inside this cell? Definitely you cannot let any big furniture to enter. So, this means, narrow gate, means to forsake love of money, love of pride, love of pleasure, self-centeredness, hypocrisy. You cannot enter while you are carrying all these things with you. That's the narrow gate. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. So now the door is open. Now still you can enter through the narrow gate. Who is the master of the house? Christ. Uh, and now actually, in his church, God doesn't make any distinction between the faithful servants or those who pretend to be godly. But there will be a time when the door will be shut. As you read in the parable of the wise virgins and foolish virgins. Shut the door means the Lord will make distinction and separation between those who pretend to be godly, those who are churchgoers, but there is no real transformation in their life, 
they will be outside. Only the true believers will be inside. And these people, the outsiders, they will call Christ, Lord, Lord, as if they were his servants. And they have confidence and persistence. That's why they double the expression, Lord, Lord. But they were seeking, but not striving. So there is a real difference between just seeking to enter the kingdom of heaven or striving to enter. Just to have a wish or a desire to be saved is not enough. You need to strive. You need to discipline yourself. Now the door is open. Now is the time to repent and accept the Lord's invitation to enter the kingdom through its narrow gate. Because the time will come when it will be too late to enter through the narrow gate. The Lord will tell these people, I do not know you. So the Lord will, will tell them, I do not know you, where you are from. Yes, they were in the church, but they never were in the knowledge of God because they did not strive to enter through the narrow gate. Verse 26, then you, you will begin to say, <coughs> We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But you will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you are from, for the second time. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. We ate and drank in your presence. To eat with someone is evidence of friendship. You know each other. So these sinners may claim that he is a follower of the Lord. I used to go to the church. I used to attend the liturgy. I used to take communion. So in his mind, this an enough evidence that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, these people protested that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. And also you taught in our streets means we heard your teaching. <clears throat> but none of these things will benefit the people in the day of judgment unless you strive to enter through the narrow gate. It is only the true love to God, a real transformation of heart, a life of devotion and faithfulness, that what means to enter through the narrow gate. <clears throat> so how important 
that all of us search ourselves right now. What is the real foundation of our hope that we will enter heaven? Besides the grace of God, are we striving to enter through the narrow gate or not? The Lord declined their protest and told them, depart from me. So, I do not know you was repeated twice. Depart from me is a strong confirmation to denote the certainty of the truth expressed, I do not know you. And to cast off all false hope in them that if they begged and appealed, maybe their appeals will be accepted. Then the Lord told them in verse 28, after told them, depart from me, he said, where they are going, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So he told them you will be in, in the lake of fire, the hill, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they will see others entering into the kingdom of God. Then in verse 29, he said, on the day of judgment, there will be surprise. For example, let me tell you what I mean by surprise. During the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you saw Judas and if you saw the, the right thief, you would say definitely Judas is going to heaven. He's one of the twelve. He's performing miracles. He's teaching and preaching. But the thief is totally away from God. But what would happen? Exactly the opposite. The thief entered into the paradise and Judas perished. That's verse 29. They will come from the east and west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed there are last who will be first. Many people whom we consider last, but they will be first. And there are first whom we consider first in the church who will be last. It's a very scary verse. It's a very scary verse. This verse points to an aggravation of the misery of the outcast. Many men comes, men, sorry, men come from every quarter of the globe to join the kingdom of God and they will find admission. But 
the children of the kingdom, like the Jews, will be cast out. For them, the door is shut, it is too late. But for others who will come from east and west, north and south, they will enter. So actually, this completed the answer to the question about are only few will be saved? The Lord actually forbade any limitation to the numbers of the saved. But in the kingdom of heaven, you will find people from all parts of the earth, including the Gentiles. Heaven is multicultural, from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. Verse 30, in which he said, there are last will be first and first will be last. This, an expression used more than one time by the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and sadly predicts the rejection of Israel. Israel was the first nation that believed in God. So, this first nation, God said in the Old Testament, Israel is my firstborn son, but was rejected. So first became last, and last the Gentiles became first. So the Lord reminded them that those who are in kingdom or out of the kingdom may be different than what we expect. Those who will be in the kingdom or out the kingdom will be different than our expectation or our assessment. But the Lord in these few words told us about what heaven looks like. Number one, it is a place of rest. We sit down in heaven. It's a place of good company. We will enjoy the friendship of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, all the saints, all the martyrs. It is a place with people from all over the earth, from east, west, north, south. Also, it is a certain place. The Lord said, they will come. And if the Lord said it will happen, then it will happen. Because many new theologians now, they say heaven is not a place. Hell is not a place. It is a condition. No, heaven and hell are not condition or state of mind. No. It is a place. Yes, not a physical or materialistic place, but it is a place. Heaven and earth, heaven, sorry, heaven and hell are places. Verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, 
get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Isn't it surprising that the Pharisees who want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ give him a warning and tell him get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you? So we question here the sincerity. Were they sincere? Maybe they invented a false story in order to get rid of his presence among them. Or maybe they were sent by Herod to threaten him. However, the Lord was not scared. But in verse 32, he told them, and he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. So the tone of our Lord Jesus Christ here, he is telling them, you have no consideration for my safety, but it seems hypocritical. Uh, maybe when the Lord spoke about the salvation of the Gentiles, they will come from the east, north, west, and, and south. So this provoked the anger of the Pharisees. That's why they want him to leave. So Jesus' response was very strong to prove his courage by sending them to Herod back, telling him, no, I have mission to do. I will cast out demons. I perform cures. Also by calling him Fox. He called Herod Fox for he knew the cruelty of his heart and his love for shedding innocent blood in great malice. He wished to declare to them he would not withdraw from serving the multitude, however dangerous this might be. I will continue to serve regardless of the threat of the danger. But the Lord indicated by saying, today, tomorrow, and the third day, it will be completed or I shall be perfected, indicates that his mission will be over soon. Yes, not yet, but it is soon. Do you remember he is journeying toward Jerusalem? And the third day I shall be perfected because the third day is the day of resurrection. And this is the perfection of his ministry. So, the Lord spoke about the third day and three days period, today, tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be accomplished. So, the three-day period, maybe we cannot take them literally, but it means the short period of time after which he will be crucified. But if we want to take them literally, they can refer to the three days 
that will mark his passion. Friday, Saturday, and then on the third day, his resurrection. Uh, then he told them, Nevertheless, in verse 33, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. So he repeated again. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. We can see a touch of irony in verse 33. Why? Definitely, there were times when prophets died outside of Jerusalem. But why I'm saying there was a special irony here? Because he's saying that the Messiah of Israel, who came to his own, but his own rejected him, would be rejected and executed in Jerusalem. So no prophet, no prophet here about the Messiah, that the Messiah will be rejected by his own and will be executed in Jerusalem. As, as if the Lord is telling them, go and tell Herod, I neither flee from you, nor fear you, but I'm going to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the slaughterhouse of the prophets, especially the Messiah. I will continue my journey toward Jerusalem. Then in verse 34 and 35, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. Jerusalem refers to the Jews here. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Lord spoke with a special feeling when he repeats the name of Jerusalem, this for emphasis and depth. When the Lord repeats a name twice to display deep emotion, not necessarily anger, as when he said, Martha, Martha, or when he said to St. Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But here God is speaking about his relationship with the holy city Jerusalem, in which he dwelt as God of Israel. So the Lord speaks tenderly of how he has longed for Jerusalem repentance. 
and the restoration of communion with God. But the city resisted. He tried to preach among Israel. In his first commission of the twelve, he told them, don't go to Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. But Israel rejected him. He came to his own, and his own did not accept him. And he gave an imagery here, the picture of a hen and her brood, and tells us about what Jesus wanted to do for those who rejected him. He wanted to make them safe. He wanted to promote their growth. He wanted to know that they would know his love. So he's willing to gather them under his wings. So the problem was not the willingness of Jesus to rescue and protect them, but the problem is they were not willing. And until now, the question is not about whether he is winning or not. He opened his arms on the cross to tell us, whoever comes to me, I will never reject him. So the question about you, are you willing or not? Are you willing to come under his wings or not? Are you willing to strive to enter through the narrow gate or not? It's about you, not about him. And because Jerusalem rejected him, he predicted the destruction that would happen to Jerusalem. And when he said, your house, he was speaking about the temple, the temple of Solomon, and how this temple will no longer be the dwelling place of God among his people. And before he used to call this house my house, my house is house of prayer. But now he is not calling this house my house. He called your house. It's not my house anymore. I departed from this house. I acknowledge it no longer. I have abandoned it and will not dwell in it anymore. And this prophecy was fulfilled when the temple was totally destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And from that time until now, for 21 centuries, many, many trials were done to rebuild the temple and all these trials were failed. Because the Lord told them, your house is left to you desolate. Then he said, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the early church, the Christian have spoken of Eucharist as the
coming of Christ. Because in Eucharist we see Christ. Behold, Emmanuel, our God, is with us today on this table, as we say in the fraction. That's why when Abuna does the Eucharistic procession, what do you say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He told us, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, the coming of Christ is in Eucharist. Also, in the Gospel, that's why before we read the Gospel, we say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. So, we see Christ coming to us in the Eucharist, and he is present among us we say in Iburu, O King of Peace, Emmanuel, our God, is with us, is in our midst with his Father and the Holy Spirit. This verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of hosts, is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26, which we pray in the 11th hour of the Agbaya. And this psalm used to be sung in the temple at the Passover. And also the same verse, if you remember, uh, was quoted by the crowd on Hosanna Sunday when he entered Jerusalem while the people carrying the palm leaves, actually they shouted and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. This actually finished our Bible study for chapter 13. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.